are rolling. All right, we have the legendary, the the I, the Godfather of the private training industry, <laughs> right? Like I, <laughs> Mike Boyle, who is, I I don't know how to describe him other than he, when it comes to personal training and and making a living out of it. As far as I know, you're the first, right? You're the first guy to do athletes like that and actually. To, to really do it for a long period of time in a sustainable way for as, as, as far as I know, it was sustainable for a little bit for you. Um, and, and you're, you're the guy, you're the go-to guy that everyone thinks about when they want to talk about success in the industry for personal training. Like, Hey, can a private trainer know, know enough to, to work with, to work with the athletes, like, like a strength conditioning coach. Uh, hey, Mike Boyle does it, you know? So if Boyle can do it and he can still work with the pro athletes and you work with the college college guys, that you're you're like the the prime example that everyone goes to, so I'm 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 pumped to have you on the show, and uh, <laughs> one one more funny thing on the intro is about four years ago, maybe longer, I don't know, I was on a podcast, an Australian podcast called the Mind Muscle Project, and someone asked me, I, I forget I forget how it came up, but I ended up saying back in the day, I thought Mike Boyle was a pussy. And, <laughs> and now I'm, I'm biting my tongue. I'm, I, you know, I got my foot in my mouth on that one because I know exactly what he was talking about, you know, with, with being as conservative with athletes as, as you can. And when I was younger, I was sitting there, I was like, no, you got to move heavy shit. You can't, you can't be a pussy with these single leg squats and being all conservative with this shit. And then I, you know, I didn't think Mike Boyle would listen to it. I, I would, I didn't think anything of it. And about three, four months later, I get a tweet. <laughs> Mike Boyle tweets me. He goes, "Hey, heard the podcast. Glad, glad you don't think I'm a pussy anymore." <laughs> so we've never, we've never actually spoke face to face. We've just been exchanging, exchanging tweets over the past three, four years. So I'm, I'm very happy to meet you face to face, Coach. Well, it's great. I say, I tell people that all the time. I said these are like uh, t Twitter is like strength and conditioning Tinder. You know, I have uh, internet <laughs> internet boyfriends that I've never met. So uh, and. <laughs> And, and you are one, so, but I have actually, you know, it's the, the great part about social media is that I have developed some really good relationships. And, you know, I, you, you, you meet people that are in different areas. You can, you know, I, I remember why I had tweeted, you said, hey, I got some girls that are gonna be down in your area that were looking to work out. You know what I mean? There's always um, that ability, our ability to network is, is so advanced now. Like I, I was laughing because I had a kid the other day who was, uh, you know, same thing, giving me shit on Twitter about like uh, something about, oh, you know, you don't, you didn't keep data. Why not? And I was like, I said, do you understand that when I started personal computers did not exist? I said, you don't understand a yellow legal pad where you're writing the test results down. You know, Mike squatted this much, you know, and like th these kids that wise ass on the internet. And I'm like, you have no conception of what it was like 40 years ago when no one was getting paid to do this and you know you were i mean i started out i volunteered in a 700 square foot closet basically so that i could start my illustrious career so so you said you started off in a 700 square foot closet yeah really i mean it was a little room it was a storage room across from the athletic training room i was an athletic trainer i knew i wanted to be a strength coach when when I first went to college, they really, the idea of being a strength coach did not exist. So 1977, I go to Field College as a freshman. 
And I always tell everybody in true outliers form, I walk into my dorm. Now I was like a high school kid, want to be football player or whatever, you know, kind of gotten into the weight room thing a little bit. And I was lucked out. I got exposed to stores who, when I was probably going into my freshman year of college, you know, and I saw people like squatting big weight and deadlifting and cleaning. And I was like, okay, this is pretty cool. And, uh, but my dorm director was a guy named Mike Wojcik. If you follow the National Football League at all, Mike Wojcik is tied with that other, that old Patriots quarterback for most Super Bowl rings. He has six and Brady has six. He's, he's down in Dallas now, right? He's actually retired. He just retired this year in Dallas. He, so he's finally retired. He's probably, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be 61 in a month. He's probably 65 or six because he was a grad student when I was a freshman. And he and Rusty Jones were both at Springfield when I was there. So the two longest tenured guys in the history of the NFL were at Springfield College while I was there. And I became friendly with them. And, you know, then I was like a little, you know, snot-nosed 17-year-old freshman because you went to college when you were 17 in those days. And I followed those guys around and pestered them and asked them questions. And then I started hanging around with Mike because he was coaching the throwers. He wasn't a strength coach either. He was the track field event coach. So I started going and working out with the throwers. So I'd have guys to work out with who wanted to lift like I wanted to lift and started learning. You know, Mike was doing plyos and close grip snatches. And I mean, he was like, I mean, he was light years ahead of everybody else in the world, but he was right there with me at that time. And then we had a guy that showed up to teach weight training who had just left University of Hawaii where he was with Bill Starr. So he shows up with Strong Shall Survive as our textbook for weight training, like the year before it was a Nautilus class, like, you know, where do you put the seat, you know, to line your shoulder up with the cam. And, uh, <laughs> and the, you know, my first year of weight training, it's literally strong shall survive is the textbook. And we're learning about the big three, you know, how to squat, how to bench, how to power clean. So I was, I was very, very lucky that I just was in the right place at the right time really early on. And then I've been good about getting myself in the right places at the right time pretty consistently. So, so from there, you said a 700 square foot closet. Where did that come from? Um, that was the weight room. That was the Boston University weight room for football at that time. And <laughs> yeah, 700 square feet. It had two benches and two squat racks. And they had about 100 players. Because we had a pretty good, at that time, what, you know, what was 1AA football. We had a pretty good 1AA team at that time. And, uh, and we actually had two world-class throwers who literally had to train in a loft above the basketball gym. They trained by themselves, but they were, uh, you know, like Olympic caliber uh, shot and discus guys. Um, one of them, whose son, Connor McCullough, whose son is actually a pretty good shot and discus guy now, if anybody follows track and field. But um, uh, we had three seven-foot high jumpers on the same track team. Uh, you know, we had some ridiculous athletes, but we had no facilities. And I appointed myself strength coach. I quit my athletic training job, literally walked across the hall, and uh, kind of set down roots as the strength coach. And the, the first guy I run into across there, Rick Pitino, was our basketball coach at Boston University in whatever, 1982 or whatever it was. And uh, he was into training. And it's funny, you talk about Rick Pitino was our basketball coach. Brett Brown was our point guard who just got fired by the 76ers. Um, yeah, and, uh, and John Kuster, who I think is – I don't know if he's still coaching. He was the Pistons coach for a while, but he was our other assistant coach. And uh, 
Tino left right away. As soon as like before I ever started working with basketball, Tino was gone and John Kuster uh, was like, I need a guy to do strength and conditioning for basketball. Do you want to do it? I was like, absolutely, I'm in. So suddenly here I am working with, you know, my first job was division one basketball, getting hired by a guy who would eventually be an NBA coach. And it's funny, our two guard was uh, Sean Teague, whose kids, George Teague and uh, I forget the other one, but both played in the NBA. So, you know, we ended up where I had the father of two NBA players and another guy who ended up being an NBA coach and a coach who ended up being an NBA coach. And I was smart enough to then become a hockey guy. So that's the story of my life. And then what took you to the private world, Mike? You know, what took me to the private world, honestly, Alex, was just the fact that it's really interesting. So I started talking to some people about this. I, I, one, I wasn't making any money, literally, like, at that certain points, nothing. And then eventually very little. <laughs> and so in order to make a little bit more money in the summer, I pitched an idea to an agent friend of mine to train hockey guys in the summer. I said, Hey, I want to train. This was probably like 1989 maybe. And actually it was 90 because it was the first final four we'd been in, as a, in the hockey program. We had made the final four and we had lost. Um, so didn't play for the national championship. We were on the flight home and there was a guy, the guy behind me was a former BU player who was an agent named Bob Murray. And I just turned around. And I said, Bob, I got an idea. I want to train. I said, I want some AHL guys. I don't want any NHL guys at all. Cause there were a lot of NHL guys living in Boston and they were like, a, you know, living high, hard party and a bunch of guys who weren't going to listen to some, you know, college guy. I said, I need AHL guys who have NHL level talent. I said, because I really think, you know, based on what we're doing with our college guys, that we can get some of these guys in the NHL. And he sent me, I said, I want eight guys, maybe nine at the most. He sent me eight or nine guys of his clients. And three guys immediately made the NHL out of that group. One of whom, actually, Mike, uh, Tom Fitzgerald, the, the Devils uh, GM, was one of my very first clients. His sons are my clients right now, his two boys. So I'm on, I have like 20 second generation kids yep. <laughs> of coach. So, I mean, this Mike's laughing, but I mean, literally this is how old I am, right? I'm not far. I will be alive and have a third generation. Grandfather. Yeah. <laughs> because I've had Ray Bork's son, Chris trains with me and Chris has a son who's about seven or eight probably now who plays hockey. So in three or four years, his son Kingston will be in the gym and I will be like, I coached your father and I coached your grandfather crazy yeah i mean it, it is it, it really is crazy but that's what it's great for me because i always tell everybody what i have that everybody else doesn't have is 40 years yeah you know and like you said mike there's some things you know when you were young and joe defranco say the same exact thing you know there's a lot of guys who thought i was a pussy there's a lot of guys who thought like this guy is such a loser you know all he's talking about is people getting hurt and not putting a lot of weight like i was the antithesis of like the, the west side go heavy or go home hardo you know with his hoodie pulled up and you know and here i am saying wait a second you know trust me over the long run this isn't going to work <laughs> yeah and it got me i, mean, I caught a tremendous amount of shit Kier is another one i listened to Kier's podcast <laughs> you can get familiar but Kier was the same way Kier like just used to i mean i can remember his the first time i became familiar with Kier was watching his functional training his bullshit youtube you know where he was swearing and screaming at the uh at the screen you know same thing about you know and I, I don't think he mentioned me by name but it was pretty clear who he was aiming it at no i'm i'm the only schmuck that calls people out by name like that 
<laughs> no, but you were kind of apologizing, so it was good. It was a, it was a better. Uh, but you know, but it's just funny because I always say to people, like, if you look at, like, a lot of the go heavy or go home hardo types are now functional training guys, because they broke down, and yeah. their clients broke down. And I wrote an article one time called "Training the Same Athlete for 17 Years." Like, I had one client, this uh, Jay Pandolfo, who's an assistant for the Bruins now. I actually played for the Devils mostly for a long time, but. I literally trained him for 17 consecutive summers and watched him go from like a kid who could bench 300 pounds as a college freshman, you know, to a dumbbell benching, one leg squatting, 37 year old NHL player, you know, and it was like the whole point was keeping him in the game. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't a weightlifting contest anymore. It wasn't like who can lift the most because the reality is when you go to pro sports, no one cares how much they only care if you can play. Mm -hmm. yeah for sure so then what's a lot of the say like your bullshit meat has probably increased quite a lot right as you've gone on <laughs> oh yeah what are you what are you chopped out what's all the fluff like what are you what are you keeping involved in your programs right now i mean you know we so for us we don't do any i mean we don't put a bar on anybody's back really ever anymore like we don't back squat we don't front squat we don't do anything behind the neck we don't, but I mean, we'll, our healthy athletes will trap our deadlift and they'll trap our deadlift pretty healthy. Um, we'll hang clean. I love Olympic lifting, but I've also learned that, um, you know, it's like the old, uh, well, you're not a U.S. guy, but the old uh, tricks cereal commercial, you know, tricks are for kids. You know, there's certain lifts that are for kids. Kids are, I always tell everybody that, you know, life is a gradual journey from filet mignon to beef jerky. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you, you start out, and you're invincible, right? You're literally bulletproof, you know, and then you start kind of living on Advil and icing and, you know, trying to get around all your shit. And then eventually you start realizing, like, why am I doing this? You know, I don't really like, like, this, this being sore and in pain all the time, particularly, I think when you have your first really painful experience that doesn't go away, it starts to sober you up. I know for me, and again, this, I'll tell you how this goes back, how old I am. My last squat workout I did with Chris Doyle, who we got, was up until two months ago, the Iowa strength coach. And I still remember I back squatted four or five for five with him. And the whole weekend, I felt like I had to go to the bathroom. Like every five minutes I was going back in the house, like I got to shit my pants here, you know, <laughs> and couldn't go to bed. You know, every time I go back, like, oh, I think I'm okay. And I went to see a physical therapist friend of mine. He goes, I think you got a disc or something pressing on a nerve to your intestines. He said, cause you know, you shouldn't have this constant feeling like you have to go to the bathroom. And I started thinking, I'm like, why did I have 400 pounds on my back yesterday and spend the weekend, you know, worrying about shit in my pants, right? And, uh, and, and that was like, really, that was it for me. I don't think I picked up a heavy weight from that day forward. That was sometime like early 80s, maybe 83, 84. I don't even know what year those guys played, but I was like, you know, I'm done. I had shoulder surgery in the 80s when they did acromionectomies. You can imagine that that sounds pretty good, right? They cut yeah. the end of your acromion off, and the only way they can do that is to cut your deltoid off and peel it off the bone and then cut the end of your acromion off to make more space. So I was probably one year removed from when they started figuring out how to scope a shoulder. <laughs> but like I had this, you know, horrendous shoulder surgery from benching, you know, and I went from benching, you know, with a grip this wide to close gripping like this, you know, and it's like all, all that stuff, but it was all learning, right? It's all part of the the experience, the problem with, um, what do they say? Experience is wasted on the young, right? And, uh, you know, there's so many people who don't want to listen to you in spite of the fact, like I tell people all the time, 
trust me, I did this already. I've already been down this road. You know, I've had the bad back. I've had the bad shoulder. You know, I've had the injections. I've had the surgeries. You know, it's like, I know the, it's like when you know the end of the story and it's not good (laughs) and everybody's insistent on like, I always say it's like little kids trying to learn to tie their shoes. And I want to tie it on myself. And you're like, just give me like two seconds. You know, I can tie it for you and we can be on to the next thing. And instead they sit there and fumble for hours. That's a lot of, and it's still, you know, endemic in our profession. The crazy thing about our profession is that people don't learn. I mean, how much selling do you have to do? I mean, since you're so well known for all these years, I mean, guys coming in and you got to say to him, hey, listen, look, I don't like this kind of style going, you know, going really heavy. We're not going to be maxing out with certain stuff. We're going to keep you more focused on your health. Do you find yourself still having to sell or do you just be, you just pull out the father trick and just, you know, a lot of times like the, you know, the, the juiced up power type guy who's still playing sports avoids, just doesn't bother with somebody like me. And we tend to get, the good thing is we get a pretty intelligent clientele, even like amongst our pro athletes, we get people who like, okay, this is the place to go. If you want to keep playing, if you want to play for a long time. And so it's not hard, but we do like now it's, it's, it's harder. You know, it always, it kind of goes up and down in terms of, you know, sometimes we'll lose out to on young kids because they'll go to someplace else. We'll fill their, you know, their head up with bullshit. And then we get them later, you know, they get hurt with somebody else. They're like, Oh yeah. You know, Mike's laughing. Right. But Oh yeah. I went and trained with so-and-so, you know, and, and he was all about, you know, the heavy back squats, blah, blah, blah. You know, but then I hurt my back and then so-and-so said I should come and see you. So now I'm like, I'll wait, you know, they'll, they'll be there. The good thing for us <laughs> is that our, our business is, is very um, fundamentally solid. So I need to pursue people who don't want to be there. I just have to sort of wait for the people to show up. And um, generally speaking, they, you know, enough of them show up to keep us in business, which is all I'm really worried about. I've kind of, I've given up competing with people and trying to argue. I mean, I, I argue sometimes. I argue for sport on Twitter. I think it's one of my one of my favorite things to do. So sometimes I will argue just for the sake of argument. But in general, I don't bother too much. So I mean, then with your with your business, I mean, you get a lot of people that just keep returning time and time again. Are you oh, doing yeah. much in terms of advertising out? Like, is there a, a we don't focus on that? We spend zero dollars a year on advertising. Awesome. It's almost 100%. We do a lot of social media though. So I, you know, we've, we've learned the one thing I've also done is I've been a good early adopter. So I was very early on social media. I pay attention to what's going on. I, I got involved. I remember I paid attention to Ryan Lee when people the same thing that people used to think Ryan Lee was a clown. Like he's a clown. He doesn't know what he's doing. You know, he clowned his way to a couple million dollars in the fitness field and then a couple more million in the business field. But I hooked up with Ryan really early on and started going to like his marketing events and started thinking about, you know, writing books, selling, you know, people always are, he's always selling something. I'm like, yeah, what's wrong? Like if you're good at something and you know something, what is wrong with recording that and selling it to somebody? Everybody does it, right? I mean, does anybody get pissed about a band? Oh, they're really good, but shit, they record their stuff and then they make you pay for it. Oh, they should just go around and play for free, right? They should just do free concerts everywhere. And you you just go and then they live in a van and they they don't eat. You know, it's like, but in our industry, we're like coaches are supposed to be dumb and poor. And so when you realize that you have to not be poor anymore, the poor people get offended. (laughs) 
I see this as a huge virtue signal, though, in this yeah. industry. Like, they love, like, you know, everyone's saying, oh, I worked this many years for free and all that. Like, they're trying to, it's like a cock size contest. But at the end of the day, you're the only one that's struggling, not being able to feed yourself. You know what I mean? Exactly. I mean, and I started out early. I, I bought houses. I renovated houses. You know, I've been, in, my wife and I have been doing real estate, you know, flipping houses before it was HGTV popular. We've probably owned 40 houses in our life. Get out you know, of we here. Like, wow. You know, wow. we were, it was like, I wanted to make a life, a living. You know, I wanted to be able to have a, a reasonable, I didn't care about being rich, but I wanted to have a reasonable standard of living. And, you know, that's, I mean, I worked two jobs till I was 54. I think that was when I, when I quit the Red Sox, 2013, 53. So 2013 season, I stopped working for the Red Sox. Now it's the first time since I was 20 that I had one job. And that's if you consider what I do one job in terms of, you know, running a business and running a website and writing and speaking, you know, I probably had five done like, I don't know if you remember the old Jamaicans on Saturday Night Live skit, but that was, that was kind of me, you know, it was like I had five jobs, but I kind of went to, to one relatively full-time job. But yeah, I mean, people like you're right. People, I mean, it's like people love to talk about how hard they work and how little money they make. And sometimes I look and think, I don't know if you should brag about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's a shame with the industry, but I, you know, I, I know a lot of coaches that Buddy Morris, for instance, he's a phenomenal coach, phenomenal coach, good trainer, and you can't be a worse businessman than Buddy, right? He had his own, he had his own gym. I told him, I said, Buddy, don't open a gym. He opened a gym and he says, when I was there, it failed miserably. Now his, now his stepson, Fred, is running everything while he's in, he's in Arizona and Fred's doing, doing a fine job, but Buddy's not a businessman. Coaches should either take on a partner or learn business in order to, in one way or another, you took on a partner, but it seems like you're pretty business savvy too. Right. And, and I think I, the reason I took on a partner is because I'm pretty business savvy. Because <laughs> <You know, laughs> I realized right away what I didn't want to do. And I didn't want to be stuck in the office, you know, adding up checks and figuring out who paid and who didn't pay and all that stuff. And, and Bob, my partner, didn't want to be a strength and conditioning coach. I always tell people when you, when you get into these partnerships, the last thing you want as a partner is another strength and conditioning coach. Because 100%. you're going to fight all the time about who does what. If you want to develop, that's like, you know, you, you want a person who's willingly going to do the other part so that you can do your part. Like what I want to do is coach and do coach education. That's what I want to do. I don't want to worry about, you know, the, the minutiae. I do, like I said, I, I have to worry about the minutiae to some degree, but it's not ultimately my responsibility. But the other part of that is if you do get a part, you've got to be willing to let, you've got to give that person some autonomy. I always tell people the story like Bob is, you know, is different than I am. And I can remember I distinctly one day we were talking about, um, he's like writing up a bank deposit and he's like writing all the checks and he's writing it on a deposit slip. And I was like, Bob, why don't you get one of those check scanner things where you can just whip the checks through, you know, and they go right into our account. And he's like, oh, I like making the deposit. I like doing this. And I was kind of like, okay, that's great. You like that? No problem. <laughs> I, I, cause I'm not doing that. If it was me, I would figure out some way to do it faster or make it easier for me. But he said he likes doing it that way. So I was like, okay, I'm not, you know, that's not part of my sort of part of the business. So 
I'm not going to get involved in that. And I think that's hard because the thing, and I've said this on a lot of podcasts, the biggest problem with our field is that a lot of people go into it based on their own ego. You know, they start lifting because they don't feel good about themselves, but they want to be something they think they're not good at. There's some sort of insecurity that drives them into the field. And in a lot of ways that never gets out for some people. So they're always kind of dragging that insecurity around with them everywhere that they go. Like I always said, you know, with people like I laugh and I've said this a million times, but like, if you're still posting pictures of yourself with your shirt off and, you know, like maxing on the bench or your deadlift, I'm like, you got to get a life. Okay. You know, you just got to start acting like an adult. Adults don't talk about how much they can bench. Like you don't go to a party with people, you know, that are your kids' parents and be like, oh, what do you bench? You know, I bench 400 once, you know, in a meet, no shirt, you know, and someone's like, like, what? Like, what exactly are you talking about? But, you know, you see people and like, this becomes their whole, like, their sole kind of source of conversation and their, you know, it's what really populates their world for them. And I look at it, I can go to a, a bunch of people from the town that I live in and no one will know what I do. No one will know anything about me except that I'm Mark's dad or I'm a dad or whatever it is. And you know, people walk in sometimes and be like, I thought you owned a little gym, you know, and they're looking and I'm like, well, I own a gym. It's just not little, you know, I never, it never, you know, I wasn't like, you know, I don't say this, oh, it's 20,000 square feet. You should see it. You know, I got 20 employees. Like I don't, you know, there's no need to talk about any of that stuff in my mind, but there's so much, like I said, our, there's just so much ego-driven bullshit, you know, like grown men, mostly men, unfortunately, thank God, not women, you know, bragging about things that no one cares about. <laughs> oh, yeah. So could we get like a little flex from you, Mike? Like, I mean, you started off in a 700 square foot place. For the young people that are listening to it, um, they should be inspired by your story. I mean, what have you managed to build in your 60 near 61 years uh we have a 22,000 square foot facility is one the other one is 7,000 square feet we've got probably over the course of a year we probably have a thousand something clients that come in and out i don't want to talk revenue numbers but we we we've been i said before we get on we've been we've generated a profit every year since 1997 and we've grown at least five percent a year every year since 1997. And if you know anything about the idea of compound interest, that's a lot of growth. So, I mean, we're, you know, we're what you'd call a mid-sized company right now if you were a business person. Uh, you know, we're probably a large, small business. But, you know, we've got our own certification program that's gonna be a six-figure business in the not too near future. We've got, um, we've, you know, we've got a lot of things going on. I've, if you wanna flex, I've written four books. They're in, probably 12 languages i think now uh you know probably made i don't even know how many you know i mean started out making vhs tapes so you can figure out how long ago that was i made vhs tapes then i made dvds now we make downloadable products so i've, I've run the gamut of uh marketing from into you know from what you could put in your vcr to what you can download to your computer so uh, you know we've been able to do quite a bit and the good thing is now i've got I've got like an amazing second generation of coaches working with me. So when I'm done, what we're doing is going to continue. And I think that's the biggest thing when you start thinking about whatever legacy is that, okay, is it, you know, does it all end with you? 
And if you look at like the Kevin Cars and the Brendan Rierichs and Steve Bigelow and all these guys that I have working for me, we're going to be, um, we've become what I wanted to be. I used to tell people all the time that I wanted Mike Boyle strength conditioning to be a brand like, you know, like Toyota is a brand or like, you know, whatever Apple is a brand, you know, you want people to think when I, when I hear that name, I think of a quality product. I don't think of Mike Boyle. Mm. And I think we've gotten to that point where, you know, people don't come. Some kids I actually had a kid one time I had to show my ID to prove it was me. He was like, Mike Boyle doesn't even exist. Mike Boyle's not even a real guy. <laughs> I went and literally went in and got my, like my license out of my, uh, I have a, just a money clip. I don't even have a wallet. And I came up, but I said, I'm telling you, I'm Mike Boyle. <laughs> and the kid kind of looked at me and goes, well, I guess you are. It says it on your driver's license, but he's in the gym. I had another girl one day. I'm like, cause a lot of times I'll just hang around and like flip flops in an old hooded sweatshirt. And one of the girls went to one of the other coaches and was like, some rando old guy in a hoodie just came over and told me what to do. <laughs> and the kid who was working was like, oh, the rando, did he have, was there a red hoodie? And she said, yeah, it was a red hoodie. And, he's like, and he had flip-flops on. And he kind of needed a shave. And they were like, oh, that was Mike. So you should probably listen. <laughs> Some and rando. So, and, and so – did you have a strategy to when you, you know, maybe not when you first started off, but early in the early days, did you have a strategy to get to where you wanted to get to right now? Or did you just, was you just churning the hours away in the gym and, you know, took some opportunities I, I, I when had, they arose? I had one strategy, which was not to fail. <laughs> okay. Really? It, you know, so there really wasn't, no, there, there, there was not any sort of kind of grand master plan to this thing at all. And we had a lot of bumps in the road and we moved locations probably, I think, since we started in 97, we've probably been in four different places. You know, we had lost our lease. You know, we had, we had lots of the same disasters that everybody else has. But, I, you know, the one thing, and I said, I have perfected business. And it is so simple. I always laugh at people and think, it's like, if you charge a fair price and you treat your customers well and you treat your employees well, you're going to be really successful in business. And people look at that sometimes and think, Oh, it's not, it's not that simple. I'm like, yeah, it actually is. You know, if you just charge people a fair price and you treat them well, you know, you treat people the way you would want to be treated and you treat your, you know, your coaches the way you would want to be treated, you're going to do fine. And the people that tend to screw it up are people that either charge too much money or they treat people like shit or they treat their employees like shit. And then they wonder why they're struggling. And I'm like, you're struggling because Business is actually fairly simple in that sense. And you don't need, it's not like super complicated, particularly if, well, I guess the other thing is you have to have a good product. So that's the fourth piece of the puzzle. But, you know, if you have all of those things, you're going to be okay if you're willing to, to take a, you know, a long view. And that's kind of what we did. We always said, like, we're not, never going to take a short, we're not going to take shortcuts we're not going to sell out. You know, we're not going to, we had rules like parents couldn't watch and, you know, parents would come in and say, but I want to, I want to see you. And I'm like, we can't. I used to tell me you can watch one, you watch one workout. After that, you gotta, you gotta go, you know, whatever, sit in the car, sit out front, but you're not going to follow the coach around and watch what we're doing. And it was kind of like, Hey, if we lose some clients because of the way we're going to conduct ourselves and even with the way the athletes were going to conduct themselves, like we said, you can't swear. You can't throw weights on the ground. You know, even for us, like you can't wear a tank top. Um, you can't wear lifting gloves. You can't have your, uh, you know, now I said, I used to say you can't have your Walkman on, Mike. You'll appreciate that. But, uh, um, 
you can't have your ear pods in. Like there's all these things, you know, you can't listen to music with obscenities in it. Like we have a series of rules and we stick by the rules. Like if someone plays music that, that is not fitting, they know I'm going to give them shit. They know I'm going to walk over and be like, you know, what happened? You know, how did that music get over the speakers? You know, you won't hear WAP at uh, Mike Boyle's strength and conditioning more than likely. Um, Just the after hours, mate, huh? Yeah. <laughs> no, after hours, with me, it's, it's the hits of the 70s. It's like the bridge or uh, 70s. But, um, you know, so it was all that stuff. Like, I think you have to have, you know, I'm filled with cliches, but if, you know, yeah for something or you don't stand for anything right like you have to decide these are the things that are going to be important and these are the things that i'm willing to to fight with you about and if you don't like it go someplace else the interesting thing is i think when you do that people want to be where you are that much more mm. ryan Lee used to call it velvet rope money you know yeah. when you go to, when you go to the club and you know there's that rope and there's that doorman you know and if you just walk up to him and you like give him the you know, the, the right high sign, he just pulls the rope back and you go walking in, you know, otherwise it's like, Hey, get in line with all the other schmucks down there. <laughs> you know? And people love that. Like they want to be where they perceive that there is some cachet that, yeah. that is, you know, it, it's better. Like we don't just, anybody, you know, anybody you know, getting along with all the other people. And, uh, so, so <laughs> when did you, when did you decide to bring on a partner? Um, pretty much right away, almost right away when I did it, he was a, Bob was a partner. So originally this is how, uh, um, how far back it goes, but Bob was a partner in an acceleration franchise for Peeration, which I think, I think is now blue streak or something, you know, the high speed treadmills and all that stuff. And, um, they, uh, they, the guy that was the, the majority partner tried to sell me the business without telling Bob. You know, he came to me and he said, hey, you interested in buying this business? And at that time, I thought, ah, this is kind of an attractive idea. You know, maybe I buy some like existing franchise or whatever. But so I sort of started looking into it. And then I realized that's probably not what I want. And uh, about six months later, they went under or they were in the process of going under. And I went to them and um, I made some business with no money. I went to them and proposed. I said, hey, if you guys basically give me 50% ownership, I'm going to, I'll bring all my business here and I'll get you guys out of the hole. You know, you guys, because they were, they were at the point of losing, you know, at that time, a decent amount of money a piece. And uh, Bob was one of the original investors. His kid was, it actually, I coached his son. His son played for us at Beat in, uh, in the nineties and was on like our 95 national championship team. And um, so, you know, one thing leads to another and they kind of take me in as a partner. And eventually I buy everybody out by Bob. Cause I really liked Bob. The other guys were silent partners and they were good guys, but you know, they were just more, they hadn't done it as an investment or for money or their kids were involved or whatever. Now their kids are older, they're not involved. So we kind of got everybody out and Bob and I have pretty much stayed partners the whole time. So. And, and what does, what does Bob handle now with everything Bob? besides training? So all like all of the money, literally um, somebody who was a real business person would be embarrassed at how little I know about our business, you know, in terms of like you were saying, ask me money, you know, what's your overhead? What, like, I'm like, I don't know. I know, I know one figure gross revenue 
And I know if gross revenue goes up every year, everything else probably goes up with it. You know, a rising tide raises all boats. It would be very difficult for us to increase our gross and not uh, not increase our net because <laughs> we run it. You know, we run a pretty tight ship in terms of we don't waste money and you know, except the same thing with business too. You realize why big businesses fail because it's somebody else's money. People have no problem, you know, going out and you know doing whatever, you know, flying first class and doing all this other stuff because what do they care? You know, it's not, it's not their money. In our situation, it's all our money. So that makes you much more conscientious about what you're going to do from everything. You know, I was emptying the trash today and actually Bob's wife, Bob's wife still works in the office with us too. And she was like, you're not supposed to be emptying the trash. I'm like, but the trash is full. So, so it needs to get emptied, which means I'm going to take that plastic bag out of that trash can and I'm going to put a new plastic bag in and I'm going to take it out and I'm going to throw it in the dumpster because that's what needs to be done right now so that there's not paper towels all over the floor. You know, and that's, um, you know, again, those are the things I think that make you successful in the long run in business. It's this thing, it's like so cliche, but, you know, don't ask anybody to do anything you wouldn't do yourself, right? You know, I could have just yelled at some intern like, oh, go clean, you know, get that trash outside. But I'd rather the intern sees me pull the trash out and take it out and realize, oh, I should have done that. Instead of me. You know, the, the, the message is completely 180 degrees different in terms of they see me take the trash out and they think, wow, Mike's willing to take the trash out, you know, and walk it out to the dumpster and stick it in there. And I didn't do that versus, you know, if I'd come in and big time them and said, hey, intern, you know, how come that barrel's full? They would have been like, hey, Mike's a real dick, you know, and he thinks he's too good to take the trash bag out. And all that stuff plays into developing you know, developing a culture and a business and, and teaching people how you want them to treat other people. Sure. That's part of what it is too, in terms of the coaches, people always rave about like when they meet our coaches, what great, like they're so great. I love them. You know, they're such great people. And I'm like, yeah, cause that's why we hire them. We hire them cause they're great people. We don't hire them necessarily, you know, cause they're great lifters or cause they look really good in a t-shirt or whatever. You know, we hire them cause they're really good people. I always, you know, I have the same, like I said, I always say you can, I can make you smarter. I can't make you nicer. And, um, you know, I can teach you easily, but I can't change your personality very easily. Yeah. Well, that's one, another one of the most impressive things that you've managed to do because you've churned out a bunch of great coaches over the years. And, um, my, my question that I wanted to bring up is, I mean, you've mentioned all these different income streams that you've got and as part of your business, and I'm sure other people have recommended, why are you going to still spend a lot of time in the gym when you could probably earn more money just by writing stuff and using the digital service? How much time are you actually spending in the gym coaching now? I'm probably in the gym coaching. I'm going to say, let's say, I'm probably in there 20 hours, give or take. You know, which is, I figure which now, if I wanted to work a 40-hour week is about half my week. You know, the other half spent doing stuff like this, playing around on my computer, you know, whether it's podcasts or whatever, you know, writing, speaking, doing that kind of stuff. So it's a pretty even split. The thing with me is I really like coaching. I don't think I like coaching full time anymore. I don't think I want to coach you. I wouldn't want to coach 40 hours. I wouldn't want to be like group after group all day kind of thing. I feel like I'm too old now. I don't have that oomph anymore, but I like, you know, in the morning, we generally we have a group of like NHL, AHL guys. And then we have a group of what we would be, consider our elite women. Like we've got 
one of the best women's lacrosse players in the world. And we've got a bunch of the best women's hockey players in the world. And, you know, I get to work with him. And then I go in later in the day with my son and his friends, which is a totally different animal because now I'm with, you know, 50 boys, a lot of them been with since they were 12, kind of watching them grow up. And, and that's kind of cool. So it's, uh, I can pick and choose a little bit more what I want to do and what I don't want to do, which is nice. And I don't, I won't, no one can buy me. Like I, you can't, no, there is no price for Mike Bull personal training you. Like you can't come and be like thousand an hour for Mike to train me by himself. It's like, nope, not happening. There is no price. I'd rather do it. I always tell people I'd rather, if people really want a session, I'll do it for free but I don't want to do it for money because as soon as I establish the price, someone will then decide they want to meet that price. So it's, sure. so, so you don't want to do any personal training one-on-one. You'll do all group stuff. Yeah. I do all group stuff. I occasional, uh, Alex, no, I trained Daniel Sturridge for a while when he was, uh, rehabbing. And, uh, I, that was one-on-one that I did, you know, I'll do one-on-one stuff that I like, like the girl Kayla trainer who I think might be the most, might be the best offensive player in the history of the women's lacrosse game. I trained her one-on-one for a long time when she was rehabbing from ACL. Uh, but I, I want to do that I like versus things that, um, you know, somebody's saying, much money to do this. I don't want to, I don't want to get involved in the trading money for services industry at this stage, because what you realize is there's always somebody who will try to kind of win that trade. So I've gotten out of it. I have one personal training client. I've been training this guy for 25 years. He's really, he's like a world famous plastic surgeon. I meet him at, now we're meeting at 6.30 in the morning, which is great. For years, it was 5.15. And he was like a solid three-day week guy at 5.15. And I'd get up at 4.40. But it was the same thing. It's like street credibility in the gym. Because when people see me in the gym at 5.15 with a client, they're like, man, Mike, you might just open the gym at 5.15. You know, and then people like say, oh, you're there all day. And I'm like, meh. That's all mirrors. I'm not, I'm not here all day. I'm, <laughs> I'm here till six thirty. You know, then I go home and I get my son up, drive school. You know, I do a whole lot of stuff, and then maybe I come back again or at nine, and then I leave again, and then I come back again at four. But people see you there all day, and they think, "Wow, the guy never leaves." And I'm like, oh, "I leave a lot. <laughs> I leave more than I stay." But you're just not really paying attention. So, so let me ask you. I've noticed when I overwhelm my guys with single leg split squats, and I was just talking about this with Cal Dietz uh, a couple of weeks ago, all my guys, sacroiliac joint dysfunction goes through the fucking roof. Um, what do you see? I know this is a big exercise. This is a big staple in your program. A couple of things. One thing, we don't do it with a bar in the back, which I, I think a bar on the back does put you into, you know, what I would – kind of call like a bow and arrow type posture because you've got that leg behind you and then you've got the bar in the back. So we are dumbbells exclusively and we're dumbbells exclusively because of Joe, which is really interesting because Joe one time posted a video of one of his guys with like 120 dumbbells uh, cranking out split squats. And I was like, wow, I never really thought about, you know, pushing it to that level. And at that time we were doing what everybody else was doing. We were doing, you know, split squat, barbell. And you'll appreciate this. The reason we don't use bars, the SI during the postural thing, because we, a guy, one of our players, a kid that went on to play NHL, who I will just say wasn't the brightest uh, bulb in the, in the room. And he got stuck in the split squat 
And he immediately let go of the bar and grabbed the side rails with it. Oh, exactly. That was my face, right? So I look over there and he's stuck in the rack. He's got 280 pounds and it's teetering. And he's kind of trying to like hold it with his shoulders and with his neck. And he's got his hands on the rack. And all I'm thinking about is fingers, like fingers on the floor. Like when this bar falls off, this kid's going to get his fingers chopped off because there's going to be no way that he can get out of this position that he's in. Like this is going to be, it's going to end so badly. Right. And I always tell people like Murphy's law, like, you know, when you think like, what's the stupidest thing anybody could ever do? <laughs> Some guy, one of your athletes is going to do that. Like he's going to do that exact thing that you think no one would ever be that stupid to like, let go of the bar and grab the side rails. Right. But that's exactly what this kid did. And after that, I was like, never again. I'm not having, like, I was looking at your face. It was so funny, but that was me. I was, I literally had to leave the room. After we got it all squared away, I had to get out of the room for a minute. I was like, I think I'm going to throw up. Like, I just, I just thought about, like, this kid chopping, like, both of his hands off or all his fingers or whatever it was when that bar got ditched onto the, you know, the safety rails. And all of a sudden, I'm like, you know, I'm a headline in every strength and conditioning newspaper because I'm the guy who's, you know, had the guy lose 10 fingers in, uh, you know, in a split squat accident. And so we went to all dumbbells. The other thing is we have a relatively short stance. We do not let them get that back. The back hip is just, or the back knee, I would say, is just a degree or two posterior to the hip. So we're never going to let them get into a really big angle where the knee is, say, you know, 20, 30 degrees back. And I feel like if yeah. the combination of the bar on the back and that knee being too far back may torque somebody's SI joint up, but because we're always short and always front-loaded, we don't get it. The other thing, and this goes, so it's kind of like, so I wrote an article about squats versus deadlifts. And it used to be, I said, one of the things that I said is it used to be if the bar's on your back, it's a squat. If the bar's on your hands, it's a deadlift. That was sort of the simple way to, um, to put it. But then we started doing things like, you know, like a rear foot elevated split squat or a split squat, you know, suitcase style. And now you had somebody who was doing a squat pattern, but they were doing it with the weight in their hands. And suddenly you look and think, well, does that make it a rear foot elevated deadlift because he's holding the weight in his hands? And people are like, no, look at it. It's definitely a squat. And I'm like, okay, so what makes a squat a squat and what makes a deadlift a deadlift? You know, if I'm a sumo deadlift, you know, it's like trap bar. People would be like trap bar. You can't squat your trap bar deadlift. I'm like, why not? Like, what's the rule on trap bar? Like there's a rule, like it has to look like a deadlift or if I got a tall guy, like if I got Bob Love, like you do, you know, um, oh no, Bob, sorry, I'm going with the dad's name. But <laughs> like, no, old I am. <laughs> but you know what I mean? If I have that guy, you know, who's all legs and segmentally, you know, not that normal, can I not let him squat his deadlift? And so, um, you know, we started like just stumbling around, like, hey, what, you know, what really makes a squat a squat? And, Dan John and Pavel and like, I think it was easy strength on one of their books said basically deep movement of the knees and hips is a squat and movement that centers around the hips primarily is a deadlift. And I was like, okay, that's a pretty good rule. The difference with loading suitcase style or, you know, trap bar deadlifting or whatever it is, is that your back is now undergoing flexion moments, right? You're being pulled forward. I think that drastically changes the load on your spine versus when you're trying to hold that spinal extension and balance a load on top, that drastically changes the load on your spine because now you've got big shear forces 
pushing you forward from a point, you know, like say C7 kind of area. And you've got compression. And I always said like the spine doesn't like shear. It doesn't like compression. It doesn't like torque. If we think about barbell squatting, you've got all three. Even if you think about deadlifting, like trap bar deadlifting, a trap bar is five feet long. A squat bar is seven feet long. In a trap bar, the load is contained in about a 48 inch area. In a squat bar, the load is contained in about a six foot area, right? Or five and a half foot area. If we think about the torque production capability of a barbell, conventional bar, straight bar versus a trap bar, it's really, really different. If we think about the torque production capability of a barbell on your back versus suitcase held dumbbells, it's really drastically different. So I think the, the small differences that people don't think about end up being really big differences for us. So we don't see any of that at all, which is really interesting. What do you see? Um, you know, we still see, I think, back pain, but not as much SI-related back pain. I think, you know, back pain is kind of ever-present. We still, but we don't, in all honesty, I hate to say it, but we're pretty darn healthy because we're, because it's such a big consideration for us. You know, we're always thinking like, okay, what is the, um, you know, the risk benefit of any particular thing that we're going to do? So we don't see, you know, we don't have, we used to have a lot of shoulder tendonitis back in the 90s. And then we started doing, you know, we started really changing what we we're doing from a pulling perspective. And suddenly our shoulder tendonitis went away. Um, you know, we don't see a lot of, a lot of back pain. I'm trying to think like, if you really said, you know, what's our, I couldn't even tell you what I think our predominant injury probably is. I think hip pain because we've got a lot of hockey players. So I think we're always going to have that kind of, yeah. you know, we're going to have to be respectful of people's hips. But even there, I think much less than, than average in terms of it's rare that we have somebody who'll have hip surgery, which we're in some programs, you'll see three or four people have surgery a year, you know, in, in, a, in any given program. So you're talking about somebody who, you know, 10% of their athletes are getting some kind of hip reconstruction being done. So I'm, I'm currently uh, in school for acupuncture and I'm, I'm diving deep into the bodywork aspect of things because I'm, I'm the guy per hour, right? Like, you know, they, these, these guys are calling me up. Hey, something's messed up. I need a one-on-one -on -one session with you. Even though we have groups at my gym, I'm kind of becoming that dude, the, the Mr. Fix-It when I got to clean up everyone else's spilled milk. Um, you never really dove into the manual therapy world, or did you? You know, I mean, I never did personally, although I will say yes. It's, well, there's two things. One, I do tons of manual therapy. Probably I'm a certified athletic trainer. Or I was until last year. I finally let my certification lapse, and I've been certified since, I think, 1981. And so kind of technically, I guess I could put my hands on people maybe. Probably not really, <laughs> but I would always do soft tissue work on people like my athletes. You know, I'd work on people's hips. I'd work on people's back. I'd work on people, you know, muscle energy stuff, you know, SI resets, all that kind of stuff. I did all that stuff on my own all the time, but I also have a, um, a very small list of really good therapists that I work with. So when something gets beyond my skill level, I can go and say, okay, you know, this person needs to see this person. And I've learned that has been a huge learning experience for me. I, there's a guy, I always say, there's a guy named Dan Dyer, who I always call the smartest guy no one's ever heard of. But um, 
Dan's one of these guys who was so good at that individual therapy thing that um, teams would hire him. You know, Larry Bird, he kept Larry Bird playing in the, I guess, 80s for the Celtics. And then Bird hired him, so he worked for the Pacers, but lived in Boston and would literally fly back and forth. Um, and then he trained one of the Pacers guys who had started out as a ball boy, this guy, Donnie Strack. Donnie's a great guy, but he's medical director for Oklahoma City Thunder. But he was like one of Dan's guys who Dan trained, who then went on to, uh, you know, to his own gig in pro sports. But I would take guys to Dan all the time and learn. And, and I, I mean, you, if you pay attention, you learn. And you learn about manual therapy and you learn about when to stretch and when not to stretch and when to do soft tissue work and when not to do soft tissue work. And um, you know, we were very able to, to manage that. That's the reason, the reason we foam roll, the reason we're such big foam rolling people is because I realize now this is going back probably, I don't know, maybe early 2000s. I remember Mike Clark talking about self-myofascial release with a foam roller. And this is like NASM Mike Clark, uh, you know, going back quite a, a while. And I remember thinking we, we were bringing in a massage therapist for our pro guys. Uh, and we were having really good luck with the massage therapy with getting rid of, you know, kind of all the junk that guys had. And I said, gee, I'd really like to figure out a way to do this for everybody. And initially I actually thought about developing a relationship with a massage school. And that didn't end up, you know, I was like, I don't really think I can pull this off in terms of the school and the kids and waivers. And, and then suddenly the foam roller thing popped up and I was like, foam rolling, man, this is like poor man's massage therapy. So, you know, we went like all in on foam rolling because, you know, it's like people said it's, it's bad massage, but it's massage. It's way better than no massage. You can think of there's a very inappropriate analogy that you guys are probably going to come up with in your own mind as I say this, but I'm not going to say in the podcast, but um, it's the same idea, right? Like, you know, <laughs> you got it at least. I don't know. Mike might be a step behind, but I might have to, I might have to cue him in later. But, it's, um, uh, but we started making everybody foam roll and, you know, really getting after like their, their junky spots, their places where they hurt. And, um, and I mean, we've been now, I say we've probably been rolling our groups for almost 20 years, but that was in response for the need. Like you said, Mike, there's always people that need you. And that's like Kevin Carwin, we've got probably five or six guys now that have become, uh, LMTs on our staff for that reason to, to have the legal right to put their hands on people Yeah, because you can, you can get yourself into trouble. And I'm lucky in the sense that I probably did some things that maybe I shouldn't have done at different times in my career from the standpoint of putting my hands on people and doing massage work when maybe that wasn't, uh, you know, if there, if scope of practice really exists, I might have violated it at those, at that time. But, um, you know, we've now got people that can do that and we've got people on staff that can do it. So it could be like, Hey, you know, go set up an appointment with Kevin and let them get in there and, uh, work on X, Y, Z. We'd love to have a staff acupuncturist, Mike, in case you get, you know, if you get bored. Because I, <laughs> I could always use a good homeless guy who could live in a cardboard box on back. You'll look smart in your flip-flops then next to this one, walking around barefoot <laughs> the whole time. Hey, that's what they tell you. <laughs> you want to be the smartest guy in the room, you just got to pick the right room. Exactly. <laughs> Listen, I know we don't have you for much longer, but... For the young guys that reach out to you or guys that come into your mentorship programs or coaching and education and they want to get involved 
in building personal training as a career, what do you tell them? Um, I tell them, um, read How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Because it's all about, like I always tell people, it's all about someone wanting to spend time with you. That's what it really comes down to. Because if you're an asshole, people are not going to pay you for your time. Maybe if you're really, really good, you can get away with it and you'll still get people who want to pay you. But in general, uh, people like to be around people that they... So it's not like it's so much, it's so not about like how you look. It's so about all of those things. And it is so much about, um, and you know, you know, a really good person being somebody that someone can rely on is what is really going to make you successful. I don't care what field that is. If you said, if you asked me for the same advice, you know, about being a salesman, I'd tell you probably the exact same thing. If you asked me same advice on being a coach, you know, a sport coach, I'd tell you the exact same thing. I think it's always going to come down to your ability to interpersonally to the people that you're going to deal with because that was what will make you long-term successful. Yeah. This is what me and Mike always say. Like the truth to it, in my opinion at least, is they need to feel better than when they walked in. And if right. you keep doing that over and over and over again, they're going to associate every time they see you, they're automatically feeling better. Yeah. You know and what that, I mean? I, I tell our clients that my acid test, how do you feel when you get out of bed? I want them to feel better when they get out of bed. If you get clients, because they'll tell their friends, mm -hmm. people will tell their friends when they're out of pain, just like they tell their friends when they're in pain. They'll tell their friends when they're out of pain. And as soon as their friends start saying, Oh my God, you know, my back, my knee, whatever, they're going to be like, you should go to Mike boils. You know, and that's what you want them to say. You, you want them to associate, like you said, you, with feeling better and you want to associate them. You know, people always talk about Alan Cosgrove talks about the idea of, um, you know, you want to be that third place, you know, like Starbucks talks about, and you, you want to be that place where people can go and feel comfortable. Because again, a lot of times people say in the gym where there's athletes, the average fitness person isn't going to feel comfortable, but you can come in, you know, people come in our place and there's like, guys just walking around, you know, doing their workout, doing their thing. And, it's not any big deal. And they know the people, you know, they know the moms and dads that are in there and they talk to them and, you know, they do their work and you do your work and everybody's happy. But like I said, there's no, like, you know, there's no hard or bullshit in our place. You know, there's no freaking shock flying and people throwing shit on the ground. And I'm, I always tell people, I'm like, Hey, save that for someplace else. You know, trust me, somebody saw you lift the weights. You don't need to throw them on the ground to make sure they looked. Because that's all that bullshit is about, right? Like, you know, you throw it on the ground because you want everybody to look over and realize how much weight it was. And it's kind of like, trust me, you know, if they were going to be impressed, they were. If they weren't, they weren't, you know, and you tossing the weights around just makes them think you're a But, you know, we've got, we got a lot of dinks in our field. I mean, just so many that it's I, another one of my many cliches, right? In the shallow pool, the midget stands tall. You know, we... Uh, <laughs> You don't have to be really, really good in our field to be good. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Coach, we will let you go on that. You said an hour. We gave you the hour. Thank you so Thank much. You, yeah. We really oh, appreciate you. It was a pleasure. I could, I could have done this. I could, I could have done another hour with you too. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'd love to have you on again, man. Well, let me know. When, when you're ready, when you're ready to recycle some guests, give me a give – me, you can tweet me back, you know. <laughs> Thanks so much, mate. Really. All right. Pleasure. pleasure. Pleasure to meet you, Alex. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, you too. Thank you, buddy. I'll see Thanks, you. Thanks, coach. Cheers, bud.